This is Erica Housekeeper of Happy Vermont, a travel podcast about people and places in the Green Mountain State. Chad Abramovich loves to explore the weird side of Vermont. Things like abandoned buildings, mysterious legends, and obscure places are right up his alley. Chad grew up in Milton near Lake Arrowhead and spent much of his childhood at his family's camp in Wallingford. His dad inspired his love for exploration and his endless curiosity of Vermont's history and all the things that make Vermont offbeat. Chad publishes a blog, ObscureVermont.com, and also runs an Instagram account called The Tyranny of Influence. His very first blog post back in 2012 focused on the ruins of Hyde Manor, a decaying resort in Rutland County that closed in 1970. Since that first post, he's written about a variety of mysterious happenings in places like Glastonbury and in his hometown of Milton. In this episode of Happy Vermont, Chad talks about what makes Vermont weird, the importance of curiosity, and some very bizarre Vermont stories. So Chad, thanks for being here and talking to me about obscure and weird places in Vermont. And I just want to kind of dive right into the question of what do you think makes Vermont weird? Oh, man. <laughs> All right. Well, that is a loaded question. Well, I think the short answer, if you just kind of want like short and blunt, would this be, I'm not sure. It's something I could sit here with you on the phone with all day and sort of theorize, and it'd be a lot of fun to do. But I guess if you want more of like a longer answer, Vermont in still is kind of like, it's a last New England frontier. You know, it's sort of like an endangered place. And this, I've noticed, especially as the years are, you know, sort of going on, it's, that's becoming more and more true. Historically, we've always kind of been isolated. We've always sort of had our own unique kind of pocket, like our own culture up here, like in the mountains. And really, just, we've been unchanged until, I mean, the coming of the interstates really opened Vermont up. And that is the biggest construction project in state history. So that made it so easy to come up and get essentially just enter within our realm Sorry, when was the interstate? Was that like completed in the early 80s? Is that right? Like the Northeast Kingdom finally got connected in like the early 80s? Is that right? It kind of happened in like the 60s and the 70s. Okay. So by the 80s, now that was already established. My my mom remembers when the interstates were going in and she remembers like, you know, the Cloverleaf being built in Burlington. It is, you know, how much that sort of changed everything. It's kind of interesting just to hear about it. And that really did change the face of Vermont. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, we were kind of isolated for so long. And that still kind of carries to today, even though we have, you know, the interstate and we're a lot easier to get to than we used to be. There's sort of this, a lot of that hasn't changed, these isolated places. Yeah, exactly. And I think part of that is just smart politics. We've been, I think, selective or limited with what can happen here, what can be built or developed here with, you know, laws like Act 250. So we're not turning into like just sprawl or suburban wastelands like other states. You know, and that's why out-of-staters like to move up here. Another weird thing about Vermont, I think outsiders sort of idolize it as like this strange, unchanged, almost kind of like a utopia, like their own like idealized version of America or what America used to be with our fall foliage and our small towns and just everything is just kind of, you know, postcard perfect. And I think that's kind of one thing that makes Vermont so weird as well. I mean, you know, it's not that perfect. And that's so interesting to me. It's growing up here, you're almost, you're so used to it. I have a a good friend that grew up in the Mad River Valley. And, you know, it's like, well, it's such a beautiful place. 
I love cruising down towards the Mad River Valley, but he, you know, he grew up there. He was just used to it. <laughs> he doesn't think twice about it when he's driving down Route 100 or anything. We recently had another friend move out here from out of state, and, you know, and she was just like every corner was like, wow, this is so beautiful. And I can't believe you guys grew up here. And you know, we're like, yeah, kind of yeah, yeah. Shoulders. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I think there's definitely like an appreciation that, especially the older I've gotten, the more I've sort of reappreciated Vermont. Like, wow, like this really is like a unique and, you know, special place. This really doesn't exist in a lot of other places. But the weirdness, there's something very weird about Vermont. I mean, this is a state, I mean, we have tons of these spellbinding, wonderful stories. And it seems like everybody up here has like a story to tell of their own. There's just so much. I mean, everything from the outrageous, the horrific, amusing tall tales, and this, you know, generally funny things. The two things like the weird and this idealized view of Vermont, they're symbiotic. And that's kind of what I find so fascinating about it. Yeah, definitely. And then you run a blog, Obscure Vermont, and then also you're, you have an Instagram feed, The Tyranny of Influence, which highlights abandoned places in Vermont and also Vermont's weirdness. Can you talk about why you started documenting Vermont this way? Like, how did this all start? <laughs> kind of accidentally, to be honest. The blog itself, I started as a thing to sort of pass the doldrums with. I was at a weird crossroads in my life. I had just gotten out of college, and, you know, my transition into the adult world was not an easy one for me, especially with I was a young guy on the autism spectrum dealing with sort of anxiety and depression issues. And I just got to this weird crossroads in life where just a lot of, like, the fat was sort of trimmed off those dreams that I had. And I was kind of getting like a more realistic perspective of the world and how things were. The first blog post was Hyde Manor. And by that time, I've already been exploring for several years. I, you know, so I had the kind of like a lot of pictures and just that interest had been built. And when I kicked off my blog, I just figured to me, Hyde Manor, it was so seminal to me. I mean, I started off with an abandoned creamery in my hometown. I was 10 or 11, and that was the first abandoned building that I ever explored. And it was really just because, more or less, because it was there. You know, I, I passed it all the time growing up, and I just, kind of, I just really wanted to know, like, you know, what's inside this place? Like, what's it like? And Hyde Manor was big for me because, well, I first saw it when I was 11 or 12, and we were coming back from my camp, and I just remember... I was riding with my dad, and what we used to like to do is we, our campus down in Wallingford, and we lived up in Milton. It was fun because we would never take just Route 7 home. My dad would try to find, you know, cool back roads or lesser traveled state routes. We'd just try to get home literally just to see what was out there. And I loved traveling around with my dad. He's the one that got me interested in back roading, in, you know, the old historical things. Just an appreciation just for ingenuity in stories, you know, like my dad was a storyteller and he knew something about everything. So as a young kid, just, you know, riding along in my dad's truck and just kind of seeing this new environment and just listening to him talk and just feeling that young curiosity, that was really special to me. And that really planted those seeds. Yeah, definitely. And I know another place that you've, you've written about and talked about is Glastonbury and 
for those, oh, people, yeah. those people who don't know, it's an unincorporated town down in Bennington County, down in southern Vermont. And I know we've said before, like, we could do a whole episode about Glastonbury. It's so crazy. But could you give kind of a general overview about the mysteriousness of Glastonbury? Oh, man. Glastonbury, uh, it has, I think, one of the most fascinating histories and mysteries in Vermont. And the most the frightening thing about Glastonbury to me is that it really didn't happen all that long ago. I mean, in terms of like how it kind of ended, at least, but the town itself was charted in 1761. But essentially, it was charted by um, Benning Wentworth, the governor of New Hampshire, was one of the original grantees for Vermont towns. And he didn't know anything about the topography. He just literally drew lines on a map without taking into consideration mountains or swamps, you know, or anything like that. So Glastonbury was charted over some of the most mountainous terrain in Vermont. You know, there are 12 mountains in town over 3,000 feet. So the settlers that made their way up into Glastonbury to kind of make a new life for themselves were just, I mean, it was pretty miserable. Like, (laughs) the town never thrived. Because of that, you know, you had towns that were surrounding Glastonbury. They did a lot better because they had access to better farmlands, transportation, stuff like that. And Glastonbury, I mean, at its peak, it only drew like 290-something people. You know, like it never really prospered just because of just how isolated and just how hard it was to make a living up there. The town's only resource was timber. And, you know, that's a finite resource. So eventually they stripped all the mountains of timber and they tried to redevelop it briefly as a tourist destination, but well, because they logged all the mountains, the trees really didn't offer much protection for floods. So a big flood came and wiped out the railroad, and that was a feat in itself. The steepest railroad ever built was built up into southern Glastonbury, and that was essentially to get charcoal and timber down from the mountains. So, like, in some places, it rose, like, 250 feet per mile, like, nine miles. So that was that was a feat. And the old rail bid still exists today. I mean, <laughs> I've climbed it, actually. That's one of the ways I got up into the old village. And uh, that was – I just remember that being a brutal hike. Oh, like, I, just, I don't know. <laughs> I even – I was wearing boots. And even then, towards the end of the day, I just – I didn't care about anything. <laughs> I just wanted to give up and get back in the car. <laughs> yeah. You know, they talk about, like, disappearances or just kind of weird things happening up there in Glastonbury? Well, according to, at least according to the lore that's, that's been passed down, is, so apparently even even the local Native Americans avoided the area that is Glastonbury. They saw the land as a cursed place or, you know, forbidden. So they only used the land to bury their dead. And that might be attributed to a, there is a crosswind that meet up on Glastonbury Mountain, which is rare in itself, but I mean, even hunters, you know, that will hunt in the woods nowadays will tell you it's easy to sort of get disoriented and lose your compass there. So to them, they probably they probably noticed that, too. So they just assumed, like, oh, something's, just, something's not right about this place. They may or may not have warned, you know, like the original settlers that were working, you know, they were going up into the mountains to try to, like, make a home in Glastonbury. It was known, at least, you know, that they avoided the land. And the original colonial settlers, they even told weird stories. Just strange sounds, unidentifiable lights and odors. There was the Bennington Monster, which is kind of like the local version of Bigfoot. Something like some sort of big hairy creature was seen skulking around the swamps and the slopes back in the 1800s. And it got physical one day when it overturned a stagecoach 
full of travelers that was passing down in nearby Woodford, just kind of shambled out of the woods. The horses, you know, they were spooked and they started rearing up and it just toppled over the coach and then walked back in the woods. And people, there were witnesses to that, which is kind of fascinating. And some other people have actually said, even, even recently, people have said that they've seen weird things up in those woods that they can't explain. But I think what really put Glastonbury on the map was the disappearances. Mm-hmm. And that was between, what was it, between 1945 and 1950, I believe. Depending on who you ask, about nine people total disappeared just in the woods on Glastonbury Mountain or in the vicinity of the area. Some of them are hikers in the long trail, literally walked off the face of the earth, never to be seen again. And even today, we still have no idea what happened to these people. And there were other disappearances, too. And some of them were just very bizarrely strange, you know, that were just kind of lumped in to, like, all the people. Because, you know, they did go missing under mysterious circumstances around that time. And I don't know. So it's the fact that nothing has ever been solved, we still don't know. You have all of this culmination, like all of these weird or inexplicable things that have allegedly, you know, have said to happen there. And you have this humongous wilderness. I mean, Glastonbury now, it's all national forest. The national forest, they took over the land in the 1930s. So it's like, <laughs> that adds to its weird mystique. Yeah, definitely. In a sense, this a humongous tract of land that you could still get hopelessly lost in. And it's the thing about Glastonbury, it's, it's big. And you can still get lost there. And then you think that there's all these weird, mysterious disappearances and these weird things that people have been seeing. I mean, I've heard everything. I've heard some people have said that they've seen UFOs or at least unidentifying objects, you know, in the sky in weird lights. Man, I've heard (laughs) some people theorize that um, the the name the Bennington Triangle was coined. And that was coined by um, author and local folklorist Joe Citro around in in the early 90s. He was the one that coined that. You know, he sort of used the term, the triangle, you know, to sort of designate like a weird point of land, like the Bermuda Triangle. But Bennington, you know, Vermont's landlocked. So this is just like a weird area in the mountains where people just eventually just stumble off the face of the earth. So, yeah, that was one of the first things that got me into Vermont weirdness. I remember reading that as a kid in actually one of Mr. Citro's books. He was an early hero and influence of mine. And he was essentially... Not only did he make me just fascinated about Vermont, like he was one of my biggest early influences. Like he made me want to know more about the state that I called home. But Mr. Citra was, he also inspired me to be a writer. I think he is the primary reason why I did become a writer. He just has had such a fantastic way of not only storytelling, but he would inject his own personal experiences, you know, his very sort of like dry, like Vermont sense of humor. That was brilliant. I thought so, especially the older I grew, because you kind of need, you need some intelligence to kind of make the connections and understand the references. And especially with me, that someone that had always been struggling with his identity and sort of who I am and being on the autism spectrum, one of the first things you find out is that you're trying to figure out yourself and the world around you at the same time. And it can kind of be like this scary, directionless place. So that was big with me because he taught me sort of to help get to know myself better and to get my thoughts and, you know, out better. And it's been years and years of practice, but he was a humongous influence. And he's the reason why I knew about the Bennington Triangle 
and um, Glastonbury. And actually, I convinced my parents to take a road trip there when we were young. Because, you know, we had a camp down in Wallingford. Yeah, it was was like a Sunday drive sort of scenario. And I was like, oh, let's go to Glastonbury. There is a forest road that cuts up into Glastonbury. It's so cool. If you look on, I mean, like a modern-day Vermont State Atlas, the town of Glastonbury is still charted on the atlas, and it's a perfect square. You know, you have that dotted line indicating that it's a town boundary, and it's a perfect square with the name Glastonbury in it, but there's nothing inside it. And that's, that's one of the reasons why, like, I wanted to research it as a kid, because I've always had a fascination with maps. And I remember when I was young, my mom bought me an atlas. I used to, like, study. Like, I used to like, hang out up in my bedroom and just study the Vermont atlas. I wanted to get to know my state and where I'm from and, you know, like what things were like and what was out there. So I, I was delighted by the fact that there was a, a town with just nothing in it. Up in the upper left-hand corner, there was a dotted line that indicates a forest road or a Class D road. And there was a little tiny little blurb that said Fayville. And there was the icon that indicates that it was a place. So I'm pretty sure whoever made the Vermont map doesn't also didn't know anything about Glastonbury because right. Fayetteville hasn't existed since like 1904. Right. <laughs> but right. I was like, oh, like what? So I convinced my dad, hey, like, can we drive up to Fayetteville? Oh my <laughs> you know, god! He was all, yeah, he was all for it. You know, it was it was hilarious. There actually is um, there is a Glastonbury Road which enters from nearby Shaftesbury. And Glastonbury Road, it's, it's a dead-end dirt road. It goes no more than like a mile into the actual town of Glastonbury. And there are some homes out there, like on this back road. And it's, they have like probably one of the most unique, coolest addresses in all of Vermont. You know, it's such a hidden gem. But we found the forest road. It looks essentially just like a really nice four-wheeler trail. And we drove all the way up into the mountains. I mean, some of the thickest, densest wilderness around. And this bizarre clearing opened up out of these woods. And you can tell it was a place. You know, we were shut in by slopes, like on all sides. But you had like these dead apple trees. And usually, you know, you see apple trees, and that's kind of like an indicator, mm-hmm. you know, like someone lived there at one point, you know, because they were domesticated. So it's like, oh, there was something here at one point. And we did. We found old cellar holes and foundations and, you know, the apple trees there that were a good indicator. It was just the isolation up there was just, it was extraordinary. Like you definitely, there was a different vibe to it. You felt kind of weird. Like it wasn't just like you were in the woods. It was just something almost inexplicably different about it. But this was like a beautiful sunny day when we were up there. And all of a sudden this big thunderstorm, I mean, this was ferocious. Like this wasn't just like, you know, a passing storm. Like this storm was ferocious and it came out of nowhere and it just started downpouring like it was actually quite scary we got to a point where we thought the forest road was going to get washed out we were going to be marooned you know way up in the green mountain national forest so you know we we pile back into the truck we turn around we're trying to go back down the mountain as this road is literally just kind of washing out and water is just like pouring down these mountain banks and we're you know we're crawling we can't go very fast and it was nuts like the storm seemed to intensify and it just followed us down the mountain, and we get back out on the Glastonbury Road, and we go a ways, and we get into, you know, and we, as soon as we get out onto the road, it's like this beautiful, sunny day. <laughs> like, <laughs> wow. It was the weirdest It's like thing. another dimension up there. Yeah, it was, <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, you know, like, I understand that, that, you know, that is like a very plausible thing that, that could happen, you know. It was just, 
uh, how fitting, you know what yeah. I mean? And we even stopped at a gas station eventually. I think it was in Arlington or something. And I don't know. My, I think my dad just happened to mention like, oh, some storm we had earlier. And like the girl behind the counter was just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, my gosh. Oh, uh, wow. yeah. Yeah. Glastonbury is my it's definitely one of my favorite stories because there's just so much. I know. Like it's. It's such good feed for the imagination. There's so much to talk about. There's even more to conceptualize. The Glastonbury disappearances, um, it was one of the disappearances, Paula Weldon. She was the second to vanish. I hiked her on the long trail. She just wanted to go for a quick afternoon hike from, she was a Bennington College student, and she vanished without a trace. And her disappearance has actually kind of helped form the Vermont State Police. Really? (laughs) Which is kind of interesting. Yeah, we, we didn't have a state police force until the Glastonbury disappearances. And once that stuff was starting to happen, you know, Vermont decided to get their act together. <laughs> they knew, like, well, you know, like, maybe, maybe we should be doing more. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow, that's incredible. I, oh, yeah, I always thought that was super interesting. And the theories are endless. There was one guy I met up there, and he, had a, he has a camp up in Glastonbury. And we're talking, like, you know, three miles down a four-wheeler trail, and he was grandfathered in because the National Forest took over the land after his family had built a camp, and it started off as a hand-hewn log cabin with a dirt floor, and it's kind of improved a little over the years. It looks pretty nice. Like, he kind of gave us, like, the quick tour, but he was also a, a very traditional Vermonter, you know, just kind of stoic and reserved, and he was nice, but also a little weary of, like, you know, like what, like, me, like, someone like me was doing up right. <laughs> in his neck of the woods. But yeah, he remembered all of that, you know, the Glastonbury disappearances and stuff like that. And he had definitely his own theories. He suggested sinkholes. You know, he apparently they exist in the mountains. And so he definitely thinks sinkholes might have been a culprit. I've heard other people suggest maybe one of them fell down an old well, Vermont's legendary catamount. <laughs> I've mm. heard that maybe someone got lost in the woods and then a catamount got him. There are definitely a lot of fun theories, and a lot of them can be debunked as well, because we still have no bodies or bones or anything. But Right. Besides Glastonbury, are there other abandoned towns in Vermont that you know about? Oh, you know, Vermont is kind of lacking in the ghost town department, but there are a few. So Little River State Park in Waterbury, I think that's one of the more well-known ones. Yeah. And it's cool. And it's just I mean, up on these, it's the backslopes of uh, Bolton and Mount Mansfield. So these, these are pretty formidable mountains. And it failed for essentially a lot of the reason why a lot of Vermont towns failed. Well, back in the days, real estate worked differently. And essentially, you took whatever land you can get. So even if that was up in like these, you know, in these steep mountains that was hard to access, you would still clear, all, you know, all the timber on that mountain and you would turn it into grazing pasture. You did what you could to get by and you made the best out of what you had. And back in the day, the valleys were more prone to flooding and stuff like that. So a lot of people, they thought, well, the higher up you build, the kind of safer you are. But unfortunately, the life that came with it was arduous. I mean, it was, it must have been miserable. Not surprisingly, the younger, it was the Ricker family were one of the bigger families up in that area. So eventually, kind of like an accidental community kind of formed because, you know, they were so isolated. So eventually, you know, they had their own schoolhouse, they had their own sawmill and things. So they wouldn't have to stray too, too far to go into Waterbury or elsewhere if they really needed something. So like this community kind of formed. And depending on who you talk to, it's either called Ricker Mountain, Ricker Mills or Ricker Basin. But yeah, it's just... 
the newer generations, Vermont was changing by that time, and they just didn't want to deal with it anymore. And, you know, by then, the flood of 1927 happened, which completely reshaped Vermont. So it's fascinating because all the infrastructure that you see in Vermont nowadays was probably inspired by that flood. You know, if you see like an old iron truss bridge or like, you know, how our particular road is rooted or, you know, something like that, it was probably because of the flood of 1927 and the rebuilding efforts afterwards, which I just think is so fascinating. That's why the Waterbury Reservoir was created, which is the western, no, the eastern boundary of Little River State Park. But there is a park, Waterbury Center State Park, out that way too, I always forget about. But the reservoir was artificially created. Pretty sure that was a civilian conservation corps project. And they built the dam on the Little River, and that essentially flooded out a big part of the town. But that was for flood control. And, you know, at that point, people were just leaving the mountains. The younger generation didn't want to deal with it. They wanted just better opportunity elsewhere. So, you know, eventually it all kind of just became wild again. And all the old homes fell into their cellar holes. But it's fascinating because you can still walk a lot of the old carriage roads, you know, the stage roads that go up there. And you can see, like, the rambling stone walls that delineate that this was once a road. You can see old graveyards that are up in the woods still. You know, these old, like, eerie, faded headstones, lots of old cellar holes, old, broken, busted farm equipment. It's really, really fascinating. It's so cool. And that's one of the more known ones. I think, you know, like, Vermont towns, our state hit its population peak in the 1800s. So eventually, like, westward sort of expansion was one of the things that killed the state. People were just tired of, like, the rocky, mountainous land. Like, there's sort of this old New England yarn that says, like, or a, a Vermont yarn in particular that kind of says, like, the only thing that will grow in Vermont is rocks. And actually, farmers did talk about having rock crops, like, every spring when, I guess, like, the frosts, you know, are, the rocks would be just thrust out of the ground every year, and they would have to, like, constantly, like, clear them from their fields. So people moved out towards Kansas or, like, the plains or literally anywhere just in hopes for just better better farming, essentially, better opportunity at life. But you see a lot of these old Vermont towns that had populations in the thousands. A lot of towns averaged 2,000, 3,000, and they don't exist today. Mm, yeah, it's <laughs> like, amazing. Some of these towns have mo- had multiple villages that don't exist anymore. I mean, it's just so interesting to think about. So if you talk about ghost towns, it'd be really interesting. Like, I don't know whoever's listening to this or not, but to sort of research the history of your local town you know, and see, like, what settlements existed at one point that don't exist anymore. And sometimes you'll get weirdly named roads, you know, like roads that are named after, like, these old towns, but, like, there's nothing on the road anymore, and it's it's just so interesting. Yeah. There were other towns in Vermont that never even lured any settlers. There's one town up in the Northeast Kingdom called Lewis, and it was charted kind of early in the, uh, 1761. Never lured a single person <laughs> at all. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I back. Yeah, Lewis was a Lewis was a fun sort of like Vermont centric. That was a fun like oddity trip. Yeah, you know, it's like a town with zero people, and it's it's beautiful too. Like the land, I mean, you're out. It's north of Island Pond. Like you are out. You're, you're out, out there. there for sure. Right. Oh yeah. If it's not like inhospitable bogs, it's these steep mountains. You know. And at one point, like the land was owned by a big timber company at one point, and now um, the Nohegan Wildlife Refuge pretty much owns most of the land out there. But just like the idea of a town with zero people, because it's still considered a town. A town, right? You That's know, incredible. That really fascinated me. Yeah, it was cool. 
There's a lot of cool um, forest roads they go through, which, you know, a lot of them are drivable. And that's always fun, you know, going overlanding and just like seeing where these like weird class D roads will kind of lead you out to. And yeah, it, it was, that was a fun trip. That's awesome. Yeah, that's great. I know. And up there it's so, and you've got like places like, was it Averill or Avery's Gore or some Gore areas up there? Oh, yeah, yeah. There is Avery's Gore, and there's Warren Gore, too. Right. And then there's Warner's Grant, which is, I think, like, one of the most obscure of them all. I was also talking to someone, and they said it's, uh, I guess, officially the most inaccessible land tract in all of Vermont. I'm not sure who decides those matters, but Warner's Grant, which is the smallest one, too. Yeah. So Warren, uh, I don't even know if this is like relevant or not, but um, Warren Gore up in the kingdom, it's funny. There was, it was known as um, a flying grant, essentially. So it, it relates to the town of Warren down in the Mad River Valley. And I guess back in the day, whoever decided these matters, you needed a certain amount of acreage to be declared a town. And Warren didn't have all the acreage that they needed because other towns around them already had the land. So the legislator was like, you know, if you guys can find like the additional, I don't know, a thousand or so acres you need, we'll give you a grant. So that's how they found it. They found the remaining acreage up in the Northeast Kingdom. And even though it was like miles, I mean, half a state apart from the intended town, Warren got its charter, but nothing ever happened with Warren Gore up in the kingdom. Like, I don't think there's a single person that lives up there. <laughs> no. Oh, my God. That's so funny. I wonder how many people in Warren actually know that. I don't know. <laughs> but that's a good question. That's a pretty obscure fact. Yeah. Gore wow. that's very cool. themselves are obscure. They're, they're definitely, I don't know, like just another Vermont oddity that, I mean, I've had out-of-staters before that were like, what do you mean gore? Like, what? Right, right. <laughs> I know. You know. It sounds like grisly and ominous, but it, it isn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exactly. I know that is interesting. But yeah, and I know, I wonder how many gores there are in Vermont, but I know most of them are. There used to be like an upwards of 70 of them. And that was just because of really like early Vermont and like the surveyors, like they'd really, (laughs) that was just a disorganized mess. And especially the the further north you got, you know, because it really was a frontier of sorts. And eventually, like, I mean, the maps had so many gores. A lot of them, like six or seven of them, were actually all confusingly called Avery's Gore. And it was because of one landowner, who Samuel Avery, who the town of Averill is named after, which is one of Vermont's five disincorporated towns. But eventually, the Gores were just lumped in with other towns. Like, they thought that that would have been, that that was just a way easier solution. So I think today, I don't even know how many Gores we have left today. Buell's Gore, Warner's Gore, Avery's Gore. I think we only have, like three official gores left today, which is interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, that's cool. That's awesome. I know Buell's Gore, that seems more accessible because it's just on Route 17. <laughs> you know, it's kind of right there. And it, that doesn't oh, maybe... Oh, it's like Appalachian Gap. Yeah, yeah Appalachian like Gap. Yeah, so it doesn't... It's like, oh, this isn't so remote. But then if you go up to some of those gores up in the Northeast Kingdom, maybe it's a different story. Yeah, Buell's Gore, and I was reading some history on Buell's Gore, and it was just so fascinating. And like Bristol, they got electricity in the late 1800s, but Buell's Gore didn't get electricity almost until the 50s. I mean, I've heard of actually some other Northeast, like the town of Victory. I believe that they were the, one of the last towns in the state to get electricity, and they're up in the kingdom. So yesterday, just speaking of obscure places or, or thinking about places like Glastonbury, where there are these urban legends. You know, I was up in, um, I was up on an assignment 
in Fairfax yesterday, and I drove by, drove through your hometown of Milton, and I also drove <laughs> by Lake Arrowhead. And you had told me in an earlier conversation we had that there were some interesting stories about Lake Arrowhead, and I just thought if you could share them, what was all that about? Man, so growing up in Milton, like I just heard over the years, there was this old legend about Lake Arrowhead, and that the legend said essentially that the original town of Milton is underneath the lake. And kids would talk about, there was one story I remember in particular of someone always said there was this scuba diver at one point who went down into the lake, and, you know, he said that yeah, he saw an old farmhouse, he saw a church, you know, like all this crazy stuff. So I remember every time as a kid, when I drive over the causeway, you know, on Route 7 and look out at the lake, I always just imagined there being like this weird watery ghost town underneath that always really fascinated me. There was a murder out on Lake Arrowhead, too, like in the 1900s. So there's a tiny little island out there that allegedly may or may not be haunted. It has a ghost story. Uh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Do you know what the ghost story is? So, man, oh, it's been a while since I've told this. So in the early 1900s, there was a young Milton woman, and she was married, and she had this beautiful shawl. And her husband was driven by jealousy, because apparently, according to the story, she was a very pretty woman, and her shawl only made her just far more attractive to the other men in town. And I guess like his jealousy just got the best of him. So one night he kind of lost his mind. He saw it and he told her, you know, let's go for a romantic robot ride out on Lake Arrowhead. And she agreed. Later on, he swam back to shore without the boat and without his wife. And, you know, was hollering for help. Someone heard him, you know, so eventually a few people came to his aid and he was just sobbing and shaking and said, oh, no, like the boat capsized and we were out on the lake and my wife, she drowned. She didn't make it. And there was a lot of sympathy for him. But eventually someone had, oh, man, how did the story go? I think the story I was told is that like the wife's sister, she had either the ghost appeared to her or she had a dream about her sister you know, there's like different variations on the story, but essentially her murdered sister was like, we're out to the island on Lake Arrowhead. There you'll find my shawl. And she was like, okay, like, you know, weird. But, you know, people back in, you know, back then were way more superstitious. So, you know, like she did. She was like, oh, like, you know, okay. Like my sister's obviously trying to tell me something. And she rode out to the lake and she found, you know, the shawl. Her sister's shawl was on the island covered in blood. Oh. And it, yeah. So it was then, you know, the pieces were essentially put together and the man actually did confess. And, you know, he admitted to just being driven by jealousy and murdering his wife. So, yeah, but I guess, uh, wow, I don't know, like weird. Yeah, apparently, like some people have said weird things about that island. It isn't too well known. Like I asked a few other people around town about it and most people didn't like they weren't really familiar with the story. But some old timers I talked to had told me that like sometimes like they they said that on some nights, if you look out there, you can see it looks like kind of like the silhouette or like this skulking figure of what looks uh, what appears to be a young woman standing on the island still. Wow. You know, which is interesting. But there isn't much info out there about this story. How come? Why no, not? I just that's kind of the thing about folklore. And that's kind of one of the things I love about Vermont mythology, you know, and lore the story is we have the state of the treasure trove of stories, mm. whether they're actually true or not. I don't know. It's, I guess 
people like me or historians or whatever, I guess, you know, that's for people to sort of either figure out or decide for themselves. Some of them were thought to be true, but later were disproven, and others were thought to be completely fabricated. But later on, you know, there was like a weird grisly truth or something discovered, or people are like, oh, like, you know, this actually happened, or oh, like, this has more truth to it than I thought it did, but this particular story never happened. So that's kind of like an endlessly fascinating thing for me, is just trying to kind of parse the details but this is one of those Vermont stories where it's just kind of been told down. Yeah. Yeah, it's been passed down. Mm. But there is no, like, nobody knows the origins. Like, I even I even did some research with the Historical Society way back about it, and I was kind of asking about it, and they didn't really, like, they didn't really know what to tell me either. It's just all I know is that the story exists. That's what I can tell you truthfully. But other than that, like, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> I mean, look at Lake Willoughby. I love Lake Willoughby, one of the coolest places in Vermont. And that lake has so much history and mystery to it. I mean, I've heard stories of allegedly underground tunnels. You know, I've heard this pretty much since I, since I could remember. There might be underwater tunnels connecting all the way out to Lake Memphremagog from Lake Willoughby. And some people even say Crystal Lake and Barden, too, might be connected. There was one weird story about someone drowned in Willoughby years ago. I don't, I don't have much information on this, but someone drowned out in Lake Willoughby years ago and they couldn't find his body. And Willoughby is a deep lake. I mean, it's one of the deepest in New England. So that didn't really surprise me. And I even remember, I remember hearing about, there was like a team of divers. They might've been hired by the Navy, but they were essentially diving down in Lake Willoughby doing some survey work. And according to them, they found a quote unquote black holes at the bottom of the lake. No way. They were just like, yeah, accordingly, you know, that's the story. I found it fascinating. and I would believe it. You know, essentially they, they didn't want to go any deeper. They're like, no, we're not prepared for this. Like Willoughby is almost said to be, you know, bottomless or we don't know what's on the bottom of it. But this body, this guy that went missing was later on, allegedly, according to the story, found in Crystal Lake in Barden. So that really sort of people started thinking like, wait a minute, like, how did this guy get into Crystal Lake from Lake Willoughby? Unless this is like a weird murder cover up or a practical joke and someone, you know, like, oh, I'm going to move the body to a different lake, which doesn't make sense. So that kind of, I don't know, that kind of like almost. So maybe the tunnels are there. Yeah, exactly. Like it kind of pushes that theory just a little bit. Apparently, Lake Willoughby, there's something like a sea, like an unidentified swimming object in Lake Willoughby. I've been told it's called the Willoughby What's It, which, you know, it's pretty apt because I, I don't really know exactly what it is. You know, it doesn't have, like, you know how Champ, Lake Champlain's Lake Monster, that has a profile to it, or at least more or less of one. Like, people have, like, a general description. But in Willoughby, that's kind of the thing is, like, people think that there's something in this lake, but they don't know what it is. You know, that's fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. So you have Lake Willoughby, you know, it looks like a Norwegian fjord. Like this is an incredible, it's an incredible lake. It's an incredible geographical and geological feature. But like, who knows, you know, like what is lurking underneath it? I, I see photos of it all the time on Instagram. People like doing road trips up to the kingdom or, you know, posting photos of their hikes or stuff like that. And I always kind of think about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, and it is so beautiful and unusual. Just even oh, from yeah, the, for sure. Yeah, geological. I think, um, isn't the Northeast Kingdom like an official geotourism destination? I think, I'm pretty yeah, sure it is. I think it is. I think it is. National Geographic ranked it as like one of the hundred places to see before you die or something. Yeah, yeah. When I worked in tourism, I remember it was maybe in like the mid 
mid to late 2000s. I remember that was a big deal up there. It's been a while. But yeah, so yeah, I mean, and then that spot is definitely very interesting and yeah, and and nice hikes around there. so fascinating. I mean, apparently people from all over the world, like they flock to the kingdom. There's definitely some weird stuff up there, like the so-called Newark Hum. Like no one to this day really knows what that is. I even tried writing about it at once and I might pick it up again, but I just couldn't get enough information. And I actually, I reached out to the town clerk and she was like, well, like, you know, I know like one or two uh, guys you can ask about the hum and they didn't want to talk to me. <laughs> like they, were really? just, they kind of verified that they had heard it, but they just didn't want to get in the details. And, you know, that's cool. Do you know about the hum or not? No. What is the hum? Well, I mean, it's a, short, it's a sadly short account, but essentially there is this phantom hum that is said to be heard within the town of Newark, or at least, you know, like the vicinity of that area. And no one knows why it exists or where it comes from. It's just kind of, it's just there. And it gets more fascinating because you can have like a whole bunch of people standing in like the middle of a field, for example. Like, let's say you have a group of like five people, like maybe two of the five people will hear the hum. So even like people standing right next to you might not hear it. And it's been said before that deaf people have been able to hear it. And the people who have heard it can agree on what it sounds like. I don't know. Some people say it sounds like sort of the low frequency hum of like a microwave. Other people said that it sounds kind of like the industrial fan in like a factory. So essentially at the end of the day, it's just Mm -hmm. like no one knows what it is or why it exists and no one can exactly even agree (laughs) on its properties, but it exists uniquely up in the kingdom so, you know, like, there's all this talk about the kingdom being such, like, a weird, yeah. you know, very unique. It's not, I mean, it's not even, like, anywhere else in Vermont. It's it's just so fascinating. I love it. <laughs> I, I love wondering, like, all the what-ifs. And when you're out taking pictures or you're exploring and, you know, you're learning these stories, is is there a story you're trying to tell? Or, or I just would love to hear a little bit more about kind of what motivates you? You know, you learned kind of, your dad took you kind of exploring when you were younger and that kind of sparked your interests. But as you do this as an adult, like, what do you think, what are some of the rewards you get out of this? Oh man, that's, that's, a, that's a fantastic question. I think it's, it's very individual for everything that I try to post. I don't know. I try to let sort of just the place, whatever I'm photographing, I kind of like that to speak for itself. And I always interject, like, the moment, you know, into it. And just very much, like, what were my thoughts or feelings or discoveries from that day on that trip? Like, what season was it? What, what was the weather like? So I kind of try to approach it from, like, a storytelling, I guess, perspective and just sort of narrate my experiences there. But I also, I just love learning about things, essentially. I mean, just stories, questions. I mean, those are the catalyst for curiosity, discovery, and that can lead to creation, you know, and we, there's so much that we don't understand about the world and the human existence. And that's kind of what really drives me to keep doing what I'm doing is I just want to know more. There's something kind of like nurturing about it. Curiosity. Yeah, exactly. Very much. It, yeah. It has like the power to transform. That's what I love it. And that's kind of like an endless well, you know, it, it's inspiring. I just, I find that stories like this just make me, I just, knowledge is power, like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it also sort of helps inspire me to want to be just a better person, just a better human mm-hmm. being. It's, mm-hmm. I love it. Thanks for listening to Happy Vermont. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher.
You can always send me comments or feedback at hello at happyvermont.com. You can also learn more by visiting my website at happyvermont.com. Thanks so much. Take good care and talk to you soon. Bye.